0: Of us, I invite with you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 6, we continue our verse-by-verse verse exposition of the Gospel according to Luke. The last time we were together, picking back up on this, this series that we started over a year ago, we saw the twelve being chosen by christ a prayerful selection, a pivotal selection, a peculiar selection, and a purposeful selection. We've seen through Luke that the new covenant kingdom, the kingdom of God, has broken into earth. That heaven has invaded earth in Christ. And a new covenant kingdom has come. This new covenant kingdom, however would be established upon a foundation of the Word of Christ which would be given through His emissaries, through His designated, commissioned apostles, that they would build the foundation of His kingdom, of which He alone is the cornerstone. So He has put in place the foundation of what will be His kingdom, the apostolic Word. Then in verses 17 through 19, we saw the reality of the inbreaking of this kingdom. With miracles and signs and wonders that everywhere that Christ is, there the kingdom is. Where the king is, there is the kingdom. And it has come with full, complete power to testify that heaven has broken in. And wherever heaven goes, there all the powers and principalities of darkness are being pushed away. There they are on retreat. And healing, spiritual and physical, are being made manifest because the kingdom has come. The kingdom foundation established in the apostles, the kingdom in-breaking come with the power of Christ to push out the forces of darkness. Thus, there is no doubt The kingdom of God is being established on earth, in and through Christ. So the question then will become, what does life in this kingdom look like? What does life look like for the citizens of the kingdom of God? Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. They're not different. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? It is the sovereign rule and saving rule of God manifested through and in the Son, Jesus Christ. It is the full provision of power, treasure, promises, and glory of all of God manifested in the person and kingdom of Christ. It was inaugurated and established in Christ on earth in His incarnation and it will be consummated when He returns in glory. But it's here now. And it is with His people. And His people are called to live radically and distinctly from the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are radically antithetical to one another. And it is why in Revelation, right, right, John cries out to the people of Christ, come out of the world. Come out of her. Get away from her. And come here. But as you see what this kingdom ethic looks like, it is radically topsy-turvy to that of the world. Everything that the world says makes you blessed, Christ says, no it doesn't. Everything that the the world says, this is how you should live. This is what fair looks like. This is what even looks like. This is how you should act. This is what success looks like. This is what blessing looks like. This is what curse looks like. Christ turns everything on its head. He says, Not in my kingdom. It is a kingdom. That establishes the reality that this place, this fallen world, is not your home. But interestingly, Jesus begins this sermon that we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks in Luke 6. He begins it by laying out a list of corresponding blessings and woes. Four and four. Now, there's going to be a lot of this that corresponds with his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Matthew chapter five verse seven. But they are not the same sermon. There's too much distinction between the two to say that they're the same sermon, they're not. They are two different sermons that share similar content, which is precisely what we would see with Jesus' teaching. He's not teaching one view of the kingdom and another view of the kingdom. But he's teaching that same view, this topsy-turvy, radical view of what his kingdom ethic is in multiple instances throughout his ministry on earth. And this is another sermon that provides much of the same shared ethic that we see on the Sermon on the Mount. But there are some differences. We'll see what those are. He lays out blessings and woe to begin his covenant ethic. What does his new covenant ethic look like for his people? So what are these blessings and woes? We're going to look at all, uh, all of them this morning just in reading through the text. But we're going to be focusing on each blessing and each woe over the next four weeks. And so we'll read them all, but then we're going to just focus on the first of the blessing and its corresponding woe today in the preaching. Luke chapter 6, verse 20 to 26, if you'd stand with me for the reading of the word this morning. And he, that is Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. Jesus is establishing a new covenant ethic. A new covenant law. Just like the old covenant had a law which came from Moses, so does the new covenant. And what's amazing is when you look to Deuteronomy, for instance, the second giving of the law, Deutero, right? Second, Namas, law, the second giving of the law. In Deuteronomy, the beginning of the covenant ethic for the old covenant, is, it begins by Moses giving a list of blessings and woes for kingdom living. So Jesus here is establishing the same reality that His covenant kingdom, those who are in it, right? There's blessing. And those outside of it, there is woe. But what's fascinating is that unlike the Deuteronomic covenant, these blessings and woes have nothing to do with what you do. It's fascinating. They don't even have anything to do with who you are they have everything to do with what do you treasure? What do you long for? Where is your satisfaction? Where is your hope? In other words, the blessings and the woes are directly tied to this. Where is your heart? Where is your heart? The status of your heart will determine your inclusion or exclusion from the kingdom. Not your external circumstances, but your internal circumstances. For many, these realities of poverty and hunger and weeping and persecution. In the old covenant ways and within many's concept, these would all have been pictures of curses. If you're poor, you're under a curse. Clearly, God doesn't love you. If you're hungry, it means you've done something wrong. This karmatic view—you see it in the Book of Job. Clearly, Job, something's happening. You clearly did something to make God angry. The book of Job, I would argue, God literally has this story. And He creates this account in the life of a man on earth for the very purpose of laying forth an apologetic for how His Son could be perfectly righteous and suffer. It is not karmatic. There's no such thing as karma. There is a sovereign God who providentially rules all things for the purpose of His good and glory. Period. So this turns everything upside itself. We see this throughout the Old Covenant. The beginnings of blessing. Psalm 1, blessed are. Psalm 119, blessed are those who all follow Torah, the law, the word. So by Jesus beginning His New Covenant sermon, this sermon on a new law, a new way of living, living, He is equating precisely what's happening. My word is the word of God. And blessed are those who heed it. That's Psalm 1, Psalm 119. Now what are these beatitudes, they're called, right? Blessings. Beatitudes are simply pronouncements of blessing. When you are pronounced blessed, blessed are, blessed is, that is a beatitude. And here, Jesus gives four Blessings, four beatitudes with four corresponding woes. Now, that word blessed is Makarios, right? Or Makarioi in this specific account. And a lot of people will say, well, it means ultimately happy. True so translated, happy. That's really kind of a misunderstanding, a very shallow understanding of the word blessed, right? Blessed means to enjoy the favor of God. It means to be under and in God's favor. Because here's the reality. That's the only place true happiness is found. Is in the favor of God. Is to be at peace with God. That's the only way that there is a happiness that can't be taken from you. Is to be placed in that which is unchanging and eternal. so this is why he can say blessed are you whose external circumstances look terrible to the world because their blessedness isn't tied to their present and external conditions it's tied to their eternal placement in favor of God in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount right remember Matthew's account has Jesus going up on the mount and giving it. Why? Because in Matthew's account, his purpose is to demonstrate Christ as the greater Moses. And those eight beatitudes in Matthew are often called the beatitudes of wisdom because they pertain more to the state of wisdom. What truly is wisdom in the kingdom? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger after righteousness, right? So they are wisdom beatitudes. Luke, however, only giving us four, which is the number of universality, right? Luke's sermon is on the level. Jesus came down to a level place and begins to teach. Why? What's Luke's purpose in his gospel account? Luke's gospel is the universal gospel. Meaning, Luke's gospel is to look to all of Israel and to all of the Gentiles who his primarily audience is Gentiles and to say, before Christ Christ, we are all on level ground. Jew and Gentile, you stand equal on the foot of the ground before Christ. And His ethic is for everyone. Not just Jew, not just Gentile. It is for everyone. Poor, rich, slave, free, black, white, Jew, Gentile. You stand level on the foot of, before Christ. Everyone does. On equal standing. No one stands higher than the next before Christ. So here he is leveling it out. Secondly, Luke gives no qualifiers to his Beatitudes. He doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Now. Blessed are those who weep now he doesn't give qualifiers and I'm so glad he doesn't because the, the, the immediate thing is to want to immediately run over to Matthew's account and say well that's exactly why Luke used these words and what he wants to mean what Matthew meant but that we can't do that to stay within the context of Luke and say how does Luke understand this why is he using this specific teaching of Jesus on this specific occasion as opposed to just merely copying Matthew's account which he had access to? We see Luke's beatitudes are not just about wisdom. Luke's beatitudes are beatitudes of hope. Looking forward to what will be for those in the kingdom of God. Regardless of what they do or don't have now. In other words, they are blessings of the reality of the eternal provision we have in Christ. It is to take our eyes off the world and off stuff and off what we have and what we perceive as good and blessed and to put it totally on Him and His kingdom and His future for us. Because all of these things, right? It isn't about being poor. Like if you're poor, you're just automatically blessed. Or if you're hungry, you're just automatically blessed. Or if you weep all the time, you're just automatically blessed. Or if people just don't like you, you're automatically blessed. All of these points of blessedness are attached to one singular point on account of the Son of Man. If you're poor, because guess what? All these apostles he just called, you know what their life's going to look like? Poverty, weeping, hunger, persecution. On whose namesake Jesus is. So they needed to see that's not curse, that's blessing when it's on my namesake, on account of me. Blessed are you. This is just any poverty. It's poverty that's attributed to the reality that we follow Christ. And the world may take everything from us. Is he still enough? That you may be hungry because you can't even go and buy and sell because of your following Christ. Is he still enough? You may weep at the persecution when they're ripping your family members from your home and torturing them like they did all of these first century Christians. Is he still enough? That's what this is all about. The knowledge of the victory you will have in Christ and you do have in Christ and the assurance of his perfect justice is what calls you to radically live free from a focus on stuff and material possessions and material blessing and material success and everything that the world says is right. It frees you from that. Because you know I have everything I already need in Him. And it will never be lost. This world can take everything from me, but it can never take Christ. And as long as I have Christ, I have everything. That's the message of Luke's Beatitudes here. And why he really hones in on this specific account of Jesus' preaching. And I think what Jesus was getting at in this particular message. My friends, Kingdom Inclusion has nothing to do with what you do or even who you have. It has everything to do with where is your treasure? Where is your satisfaction? Where is your approval? Where is your joy? Where is your hope? What Jesus is trying to say in these opening lines of blessings and woes is this. My kingdom, His kingdom, is not just something we get into. It's something that gets into us. And that's the difference. You are going to look at these this new covenant ethic over the next few weeks about loving your enemy, not judging others, being kind and giving to those who take from you and rob from you. And you're going to go, that seems impossible in, the, in, in my own flesh. And you're right, it is. If you were left to do this on your own, you would all be lawbreakers and you're all going to hell. If that was the standard by which you had to keep perfectly and you had no help but just your own free will to do it. But that's not what it is. The reason that you will be able to do any of these things is because, unlike the Deuteronomic law of Moses, which was just outside you, this harsh standard you couldn't keep, this law is written in you. And you are given the very means. To live it out. The Holy Spirit. Which is why Jesus told Nicodemus, no one can enter my kingdom unless what? They're born again. So why Jesus starts this list of blessed and woes and this new covenant ethic is to make very clear this. Unless you've been given a new heart which treasures me, hungers after me, is rejoicing in me, finds approval in me, Unless you've got that heart, you're not in my kingdom. You're not in my kingdom from the outset. So if you see this and you go, this is all beyond me, I can't do this, this one, the only thing you need to be praying for is, Lord, make me born again again. Make me new, newly born. Give me a new heart. Because unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. These questions, where is your treasure? What do you hunger after? Where do you find joy? What is your approval and security and hope? It is answers to those questions that will answer whether or not the kingdom is truly in your heart. So for the next four weeks, we're going to look at each one of these blessings and our corresponding woes together. So today we'll be looking at verse 20 and 24. Here we begin the first announcement of blessing. Jesus says in verse 20, He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This word poor, as we're going to see and I'm going to hope to flesh out to you, is meant to be understood both literally and spiritually. And it's important to understand why why does Jesus speak in this kind of way? Why doesn't He give us a qualifier? It's because He gives us the Holy Spirit to see and to understand and to see the rest of His Word to understand what it is that He's teaching us. Blessed are the poor. Right? Are you who are poor? For yours is the kingdom of God. Now, notice this isn't just every person who's poor. Even though He doesn't give us a qualifier like poverty in the Spirit like who He does in Matthew. We see from the contextual clues that Jesus is not referring to every single person who's poor. That just just because you have a lack of money in your account, you're automatically on the way to heaven any more than having a whole lot of money in your account means you're on the path to destruction. That's not what's being said here. Notice first who He lifts His eyes upon. He lifted His eyes on His disciples. Those who have followed Him down from the mount. Those who are going after Him. Those who want to live for Him and His kingdom. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. The the overwhelming majority of Jesus' First disciples for really the first three centuries of the church. You know what they consisted of? Poor, mostly slaves. They were made poor because of persecution, poor because of the mission that they set their heart on. They were nobodies in the world. The lowest class. That's who constituted the kingdom of God. From everything from the world standpoint, that seems foolish. God's kingdom? With all these poor people and beggars? And slaves? Yeah. That's God's kingdom. Not because they're poor, but because of what they treasure. That's what's going on here. Notice all of their condition is primarily based upon Jesus' teaching. This will happen on account of me. When you're poor on my account, when you're hungry on my account, when you weep on my account, when you're persecuted on my account, blessed are you. Rejoice in that day. Celebrate. Leap for joy. Because they did the same thing to who? The prophets, the true prophets. As opposed to all the woes that go after the false prophets. So Jesus creates two people. The true prophets, the true remnant of his, and the false prophets. Right? What happened to all the prophets? They were killed. They were outcast. They had nothing. Nothing. That is often the lot of those who follow God in this world. Because everything about you is at enmity, at war with what the world says is right and good. James chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. James gets to the heart of this because James is dealing with people who are are telling the poor who come to the church services, you need to sit outside or go to the back. Where all the people, the rich, were getting put forward in a place of honor, right? Because clearly God loves them more than them. Look at their external circumstances. Look at what James has to say about this. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in what? In faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Where's your heart? But you who have dishonored the poor are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the court. You're appeasing the very people who their love is going after the world. But the ones whose love is after God, you say you've got no place here. Have you not forgotten the kingdom you belong to? He used to do this in the church in the, uh, the Puritan England. is You could actually buy your place, your seating in the church. Maybe you've gone to an old classic uh, church, maybe an old classic uh, um, sanctuary somewhere where they have the old pews. And on the side there was names of people's pews. And the wealthier you were, the more you gave to the church, the farther front you got to sit. That's why the Baptists had to start sitting in the back. But no, that's not why. But, but they would do this. Clearly not reading James at all. He chose you those who are poor in the world. What is it about poverty particularly that has it? Because remember, this is both literal and spiritual. The picture of poverty is one of total and utter dependence. It's the recognition, I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything at all to bring. I am totally dependent upon everything from God. And when you're there, you're finally on the right trajectory. These people lived in utter, complete dependence on God. The prophets, the apostles, the early church, they lived on the day after day new mercies of God to provide for them exactly what was needed. And that's all they had to cling to. Poverty was seen by many, especially you can imagine Theophilus, who is one probably a Roman um, courtier or some of these upper Gentile individuals that are in Luke's circle, who are probably going, you know, we're, we're interested in this Jesus thing, but most of the people we go to church with are poor. I, I don't, where does that make sense? Shouldn't God like be blessing them if they're. Following truly His Son? And Luke includes this specific account of Jesus' teaching and remove, make sure that there's no qualifiers in it. And he does that to make sure that's got nothing to do with their blessed state. These individuals with no material security, they've got no material treasure to find comfort in, they are living in complete and total reliance upon God, both materially and spiritually, in their following of Jesus. And because of that, blessed are they. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Notice in all the other ones after this, blessed are those who hunger, for you shall be filled. Blessed are those who weep for you shall rejoice. It's all future, right? It's all eschatological, pointing to what will be in the kingdom forever. But notice for this, it's present. Yours is the kingdom of God. In other words, what what makes you blessed in spite of the fact that you don't have anything materially in Christ? What makes you blessed in spite of the fact that spiritually you recognize you are empty, Morally bankrupt, what makes you blessed in Christ? It's the answer that you already have everything. The eternal riches of glory found in Christ Jesus are yours right now if you're in Christ. God. So who cares, right? Who cares the amount of sense in your bank account if you possess the Christ? of salvation. You are rich beyond imagination. Don't so look to what is seen. Look to what you have in Christ right now, beloved Christian. Yours is the kingdom of God. The full abundance of the riches of glory in Christ are yours right now in Christ. Blessed are you. The kingdom of God is the place where all of God's power, presence, and riches are fully manifest. And entrance to that kingdom and all of its manifold blessings has a single point of entry Jesus. He is the way. You cannot get into the kingdom without submission to the king. When you submit to this King, you'll realize He is the treasure to begin with. He is the treasures of the kingdom. Knowing Jesus and belonging to Him is what we are to treasure more than anything else. What we are to find security above any and everything else. It's got to be in Jesus. He has to be the basis of what we say makes us rich. As we read in the churches of Revelation, though you, though many of you are poor, yet you are rich. Why? Because you've got Christ. And if you've got Christ, you've got everything. You've got everything you could ever need in Him. The kingdom is yours. But this is contrary to the woes that He gives to the rich. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Notice here what it is about the rich here that's the problem. It's not their riches. It's what their riches have become for them. You have received your consolation. The Greek word for that is paraklesis. Comfort, consolation, hope, security, paraclesis. In other words, their riches are the means of their security. Their riches are the means of their comfort. Their riches are the means of their hope. Their riches are the end to which they live for. Contrast that word consolation, paraklesis, To what that old man Simeon back in Luke 2 said was the true consolation. Luke chapter 2 verse 25 through 30. We read this about Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Waiting for the consolation. paraclesis of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon is waiting every day, this aging man who's who's nearing death, he's waiting every day at the temple looking for what? The Paraclesis, The consolation of Israel. And where does he find that consolation? In a single look at the infant Jesus. My eyes have seen the salvation. In other words... Simeon says in that closing swan song of his, I can die now, God. You can take me. I've got all the comfort I'll ever need, all the consolation I need. Why? Because I've seen the Christ. That's my treasure. I'm good to go now. Take it all from me, even my life, because I've got all I need in Him. I've seen it. In John 14... Jesus said when he would leave that he would leave his people the comforter. This is why the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, paraclesis. And it's precisely why yours is the kingdom of God. Because Jesus, in his glorious, immense, wonderful rule over us as king, puts the comfort inside of us. It's not just about whether or not you're in the kingdom. It is the kingdom in you. They've had their consolation, the riches. The riches is their comfort, their treasure, their hope. But for us in the kingdom, our hope is the Christ. Our hope is the Holy Spirit who is in us. It has nothing to do with the riches of this world. It is the riches of the kingdom that we have already in Christ. My friends, this is not just a matter of poor versus rich, not poverty versus wealth. It is not wealth that puts someone on the path of destruction any more than poverty puts someone on the path to glory. Don't walk away with that this morning. Job, Abraham, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, Lydia were all wealthy people who were disciples and followers of the Lord, who are in the kingdom. So it isn't about wealth, the presence of riches, the presence of wealth. It's about the love of it that is dangerous. When wealth becomes your security and comfort. When your hope is found in what you have. My friends, our money, right? It, they're just, it's paper, it's coins, at least for now. They, they mean nothing, right? except for the fact that we have ascribed value to them, And we take that money and we give it to that which we determine as valuable. You give money to that which you deem as valuable. Entertainment, food, the church. The movement of your money reveals the movement of your heart. It's why Jesus will say in Luke 12, where your treasures are, there your heart is. Because it's a revelation of what you place value on. And there's a great amount of warnings in the Bible about the dangers of what happens when you put riches as your consolation. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, whoever trusted in his riches will fall but the righteous will flourish like green Notice, who trusts in his riches. Is that where your consolation is? Is it what you have, what you possess, what you need. In Jesus' parable on the sower, notice what he says chokes out the word. Matthew 13, 22. As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. What is the deceitfulness of riches? It's this if you don't have me, you won't be happy. If you don't have me, you won't be satisfied. If you don't have me, you don't have security. If you don't have me, you've got no hope. That's the deceitfulness of riches. And it will choke out the word which tells you over and over again, all you need is Christ. And he'll provide everything else. All you need is Christ. And he'll provide everything else. The deceitfulness of riches chokes that out and says, no, you got to have me to be happy. you got to have me to be secure. you got to have me to have hope. And that is a lie that chokes out the truth of the word that says all you need is Christ. And everything else will be added. The dangers of riches is that they blind us from certain aspects of the fall. Poverty, sickness, the the fact that we are totally frail, it blinds us from that while giving extra credence to other aspects of the fall. Greed, covetousness. The thought that says, I'll be happy if I just get a little more. My friends, Adam and Eve had a wealth of produce in the garden. It was the desire for the one thing they didn't have that led them to destruction. And you know what causes that? It's the fact that you don't treasure God. Why did Adam and Eve want to eat the fruit? They didn't treasure God enough. Because if you treasure God, I don't even need the fruit. I got him. This is what sin does. Sin lures you to promises of happiness and joy, but it does it divorced from joy and peace and happiness and security in Christ. He says, Come and eat all this. Come have it all. Have all the pleasure, all the fun, all the satisfaction, all the joy, all the riches you want. Come and live a lavish and Lord's life. Just don't think about Jesus. Woe unto you if that's your consolation. Luke gets to the heart of this so many places in his gospel. But for, time of, of say, uh, for the sake of time and brevity, I want to look at three examples where this danger of riches being consolation as opposed to treasuring Christ uh, is, at, is at the forefront There's two parables and one real life story. The first parable is the parable of the rich fool given in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 to 21. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Nothing wrong with this so far. Here's where it now turns. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. In other words, you're gone. You're done. Your life's over. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Notice, there's no, this man is not called a fool because he was prosperous. This man is not called a fool because his farming and business did well. He was called a fool because he found his comfort and hope in what he had. His joy and his peace came when he said, I finally got enough. He had stored up his riches, what? For himself. Rather than being rich towards God. And what does it mean to be rich towards God? Let's, let's, let's flip this parable on its head and talk about what that would look like being rich towards God. It would be this. The man has an immense amount of produce and goods. He sees that his farm has taken off. It is producing an abundance of harvest. He has to build multiple barns because of how profitable it is. Being rich towards God would have said, God, thank you so much for this. How can I bless your people? How can I use this for more kingdom advancement? How can I use this for God? It's all yours anyway. How can I use this for you? This isn't about me. I may die tomorrow, God. How can I use this to make much of you? Because it's all yours to begin with. That's what it is to be rich towards God. To know it's all from Him in the first place. And everything you have should be used towards Him. And His people. That would have made Him a wise man. To say, I have been blessed to bless. Not for myself. Not God, how can I have more greater parties? How can I have more merry times? How can I buy more food and more drinks? How can I serve you with this this amazing provision, God? That would have been the opposite to this story. That's what riches towards God looks like. It says, God, you're my treasure. And everything else is an overflow of the treasure I have in you. So I have to use it for your glory. The rich man and Lazarus. Know the story? Poor man Lazarus. Wounded. Got wounds on him. Dogs, dogs licking. He's a beggar in the streets. Got nothing at all to his name. Everything about this story, all these beatitudes are found in rich man and Lazarus story. Lazarus is poor. Lazarus is hungry. Lazarus weeps. Lazarus is persecuted. The rich man has Everything. Wonders, glory, goods, riches. And the two die. Lazarus, having trusted in the righteousness and provision of God solely, looked to him as a sinner and empty, goes to Abraham's bosom. We'll talk about that. But it's simply the place of paradise prior to the resurrection of Christ. a place where the saints would go in waiting and preparation for the day that they would be carried into the presence of God by their Messiah. He, Lazarus goes to paradise. But the rich man... Goes to destruction. And we read, he, he cries out to, to, to get relief, to have Lazarus, the one who was, who was looked at and passed over to give and provide some relief to him in his judgment. We read this in verse 24-25. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted. And you are in anguish. Notice what he said. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. What does he mean by good? He he says, you received the things you desired. Your consolation. You got it. And guess what? It died with you. That's what the riches of this world will do. They'll die with you. But now you are in anguish. Whereas he who was in anguish in the world is now in glory forever. Notice in that parable, Lazarus is given a name. The rich man is only known by what he longed for most. His riches. His having defined his being. And that is the great woe of all is when what you have determines who you are. As opposed to having everything you need and being who you are in Christ, in Christ alone. One final, the rich young ruler. We know the story. But I want us to to see this specific part about the consolation. Luke 18, when Jesus heard this, remember, the the rich young ruler just said, I did all the laws. I've obeyed them. And Jesus now shows His heart is not where it needs to be. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow Me. But when He heard these things, He became very sad for He was extremely rich. And He walked away. Why? Because his consolation wasn't Christ. It was the riches. I can't walk away from these. That's my security. That's my hope. That's my comfort. That's my blessing. And if that's the case, you have no part in Christ. If that's your consolation, you'll have no part in Christ. He went after his consolation. And if your consolation is the accolades, the wealth, the the pleasures of this world, you'll walk away from Christ eventually. But if he's your consolation, it doesn't matter if everything else is taken. You'll always be rich in glory. You'll always be rich in glory. And he's enough, he's got to be enough. If you live for the riches in Christ, your treasure is eternal. It can never be taken from you. It can't be lost in a stock market crash. It can't be taken from you when the banks collapse or when the government drains your accounts because you won't bow the knee. And if you live in utter and complete reliance on Jesus for your security and your treasure, if it is tied up solely in Him, I want you to know today, you are richer than you can ever imagine. If you have Christ, you are wealthier than you could ever know. Because all the glories of heaven, the kingdom of God, is yours in Him. But, Blake, what about our real needs? I got bills to pay. I, I, I got kids. I want my grandkids to be set up for success. I, I, I got real needs. Are you just saying just to be flippant about it? No. I'm not. I'm not telling you to be bad stewards. This has got nothing to do with stewardship. It's about what you treasure and love first and foremost in your life. But I promise you this. The only hope for you to crush the anxiety of I need and I have to have and I have to make ends meet is to be right and know that I've got everything in Christ. That's the only way for that anxiety of this world to be killed in your heart is to know you already have everything in Christ. Jesus would go on right after the parable of the rich fool to say this to us in Luke chapter 12, verse 22-34. He said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Oh, of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need him. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Here it is. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fall, where no fee- thief approaches nor moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you see this? He's not giving a commission there, a command to just tell you to go out tomorrow and sell your house or everything. What He's saying is this. When you know That in Christ, right, your father not only knows every need you have, he will provide them for you better than you can yourself. And it is his good pleasure to care for you. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. When you know that you have that, it frees you from stuff. It frees you from the material anxieties that if I don't have, I'll go without. As if your Father doesn't know every need you have. As if He doesn't perfectly provide everything that you need here and for eternity. This is what Jesus wants us to see. That if you're in Him by faith, the riches of His kingdom are yours right now. New life Perpetual provision. Unending care. Eternal security. It's all yours in Christ Jesus. So seek ye first the kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. He is the supreme treasure. And if you have Him, everything else is just an overflow of the blessings of God. If you have Christ... You are rich. So here's closing for you today. Some closing takeaways. It's all lost without Christ. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a dirty word in the Greek, by the way. I count it as Rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. It's all loss for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus as Lord. Everything you, you obtain in this life, money, wealth, position, positions, prestige, anything that you amass for yourself, I want you to know it will die with you. If you're not in Christ. It's all lost without Him. He is the sum and substance of all of the cosmos's riches. And week in and week out, my only prayer, my only prayer, if you would take nothing else from the preaching of Blake Hart ever, the one takeaway that you must go away with is this. He is more value. Jesus is more valuable than anything else in the universe. He is greater than all things. He is the greatest of riches, the greatest of treasures. He is the pearl of great price. He is everything and everything else is lost without Him. A good marriage is lost without Him. Good parenting lost without Him. Great business lost without Him. The most immense treasures and pleasures of the cosmos and creation are lost without Him. So as we read of Jesus in Mark, verse eight thirty six, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What do you treasure? What is your treasure? For where you treasure, that is where your heart is. Where does that verse fit on your vision board? Secondly, when you know of the immeasurable riches of Christ, it frees you for radical giving and care for others. I want you to read two things here about two impoverished groups of people. First, out of Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, listen, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You hear that? The Macedonian church is already in severe affliction. They are impoverished. They've got nothing. Yet they are begging Paul to be able to take part in giving to the relief famine for Jerusalem. We don't have much, but please take it all. Take it all if it means blessing our brothers and sisters. You know how you can do that? It's when your heart's been freed from stuff. It's when it's been broken from the material clinging that my being is tied to my having. It says I got everything in Christ. That's my brother and sister. Take it all if they're in need. God will will do what He needs to here. Take it. My brothers and sisters are hurting. How can I help them? When you know of the immense treasures you have in Christ already, it breaks the slavery of stuff and it frees you to give under no compulsion. They begged for the favor of getting to give. There is no compulsive giving in the church today. Hear me that. No tithe that is complacently put on you to say, you better give a tenth. You better give this much. There is none of that in the new covenant kingdom. Why? Because if you can't freely give to the people, your own people, your kingdom people, your heart isn't treasuring Christ. So you shouldn't be given under compulsion. You give whatever you can give. Not because you need to or have to, but because you love Christ more than anything else. The the poor widow, Luke 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box and He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And He said, Truly I tell you this, poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It wasn't the amount of sense. She put into the box. It was the amount of satisfaction she had in God in her heart. When you know it's all His. When you know He's going to provide for you. When you know that all of the riches of glory are yours in Christ Jesus. You're free to give. You're free to live in reckless and radical giving and benevolence towards others in need. Because I have everything in Christ. And so, so often, one of the things that, we, that keeps us from giving is the fear that it's going to be taken advantage of. How can it be taken advantage of? You've got everything in Christ, that can't be taken from you, it's of no loss. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how everything we do for Christ is never in vain. What do you treasure? What you value, what you pour out your riches towards, that is where your heart is. So live radically knowing Christ has given you everything. Thirdly, kill your anxiety with the immense truth of the Father's grace towards you. All the anxiety that you have in here today about your bills, about whether or not we're going to be able to make it, whether or not we're going to have enough for retirement, whether or not I'm going to be able to pass all these, all that anxiety. That creeps into you. This is not about stewardship. We're not talking about that. We're talking about your anxiety. That weighs upon your hearts. That says you and your family won't be satisfied. If you don't have enough. Let the knowledge of God's grace towards you. Burn away all that anxiety that you came in here with. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If you ever are doubting the care and provision of your God, you better look to the cross. Because you haven't looked hard enough. Because if He gave you Christ, what will He keep from you? What will your Father in Heaven keep from you that you do not need? And the only things He will keep from you is things you don't need. Sometimes the absence of what you perceive as blessing is actually the greatest gift from God because He's keeping something from you that would tear you off into slavery. Maybe the fact that you don't have might just be the greatest gift that God's giving you. He will give you all things if you treasure Him above all things. And then lastly, the knowledge of our true pro- poverty is the pathway to the kingdom's riches. This poverty here, we live in America. We live in one of the wealthiest countries in periods of history. And even the most impoverished Of Americans would often be rich in several other parts of the world. But remember the rich young ruler? How, when asked about the law of God, he said, Oh, I do all that. You see, this is the great danger of material wealth. Is it creates in our heart the belief that we are self-sufficient? Oh, I'm good. Look at my life. Look at my house, look at my cars, look at my bank accounts. I'm good. I have what I need. I'm clearly doing all the right things. But the problem is what that is. Every single one of us, all humanity is level in this place. We are spiritually bankrupt. Poor to the utterest, utterest the, the most utter of degrees. When it comes to our spiritual wealth, we don't have any outside of Christ. We are in deficit, major. The best example of this spiritual poverty is found in Luke again, Luke chapter eighteen, verse nine through fourteen. He told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Notice that's the context. He's telling us to, Jesus is telling us to people who are trusting in their self righteousness and their own self sufficiency. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this man went down to his house justified under the favor of God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That tax collector had come to the most clearest and necessary place For us to be in order to receive Christ. And that is the knowledge of our spiritual poverty. I have no help. No hope apart from you God. I've got nothing to bring. Nothing to give. We are morally bankrupt. And the only bailout that we have. Is found in the treasure trove of grace. In the blood of Jesus shed for sinners. That's the only bailout you got spiritually is the riches of Christ. William Carey, the father of the modern mission movements. By every standard, a righteous man, a powerful, wonderful man that we should exemplify and follow. This is what he wanted written as his epitaph. William Carey, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on your kind arms I fall. He knew of his impoverished state And he knew that everything he had, everything he did, was owed to one single answer. The riches of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It is precisely when we come to the reality that we have nothing outside of Christ and cast ourselves wholly on His gracious and merciful arms that we gain everything in return. My friends, life is not in having things. Life is is in knowing God in Christ Jesus. As Jesus would say in John 17, for this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ. That is life. You were not made for things. You were made for God. We'll sing here in a moment. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ. That is life. That is treasure forevermore. That will free you from anxiety and stuff and free you for radical love and service to others. Oh, poor sinner, to know Jesus is to be truly rich, truly blessed. Trust Him for your security. Treasure Him above all else. And yours will be the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. God, help break our our grip on stuff and the the need to to have as a means of security and comfort and consolation. Lord, where You have blessed us in abundance. Lord, we thank You for that. We praise You. And God, our prayer is show us how we can use it for Your glory. How can we multiply it in love and service to others? How can we exemplify through our life That our treasure is You. That our heart is set and satisfied totally on You, God, as the supreme treasure of the universe. Lord, let our security, our treasure, our hope be found not in what we have, but in You and You alone. Let the fullness of what we are and do be surrendered to the realities that we have everything in Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning, God, if there's someone who doesn't know You, that for the first time, they would see that they are spiritually bankrupt. That that You would crush all self-sufficiency. And that You would show them that there's only one hope for their salvation. It's Christ. And give them the heart to surrender to believe, to treasure Jesus above everything else. God, that is the great battle of life. The battle of temptation is the belief that there are good things outside of Jesus. God, show us that that's a lie. That the only goodness that we will ever be able to experience the things You created in this world is when we Rejoice and use them and embrace them in light of who You are and what You made them for. God, make us make us treasure You. Set our eyes upon heaven and the fact that ours is the kingdom of God. We love You, O oh Lord. We surrender to You, O God. Show us where we are idolizing and holding on to stuff. Show us where anxieties are rooted in the fact that we are treasuring other things over You. And give us Jesus. Oh, give us Jesus. For our worth is not in what we own or what we have. It's in knowing Him and Him alone. We say all these things in His precious and holy name. Amen.